All of us in this room probably know examples in life of people who threw away tremendous opportunities and tremendous potential. You see this all the time. We are bombarded by headlines of movie stars and sports stars and high-profile leaders, political leaders who have the potential to either make millions of dollars in their uh, athletic uh, endeavor or have the potential to make a significant impact in this world, yet they throw it all away by making foolish decisions and foolish choices. They squander away their privileges and they forfeit their opportunities because they get involved in illegal activities such as drunken driving or dog fighting or drug addiction or whatever the case may be. The stories seem endless. In the past, we have seen the stories of Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton and Michael Vick and Tank Johnson, and you could just add almost an innumerable number of, of names to this list, not to mention the countless others whose stories aren't even publicized. You may have friends or people in your family who are like this to one degree or another. They have or had great privilege and potential or opportunity, yet they completely forfeit it by making wrong choices. Sadly, this is a repeated story of history. But the most tragic of all took place in the first century. Never did any group of people have more privilege and more opportunity and more potential than the Jewish people who had the experience of being around Jesus while he was here on the earth. They had the privilege of hearing him speak. They had the privilege of seeing him minister. They had the opportunity to give him their lives. They had the potential to be the most blessed people on the planet. After all, Jesus came offering them the kingdom. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But they squandered their opportunity, and they forfeited their potential, and they spurned their privileges. As a result, the people with the most potential of all time ended up fruitless and cursed. We see the graphic portrayal of that reality in the text to which we come this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11 as we continue our trek through Mark's tremendous gospel account, and I invite you to please follow along as I read verses 12 through 24 of Mark chapter 11. Mark tells us, now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. 
Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. As we come to this portion of Scripture, we are looking at events that took place during the last week, the last few days of our Lord's life. That may not be clear at first glance because we are only in chapter 11 of Mark's gospel, and there are a total of 16 chapters, so it looks like we have quite a ways to go. That is because Mark gives so much focus to the events that took place leading up to and following the crucifixion. All of the gospel writers placed a heavy emphasis on the final days of our Lord's life. For example, over one-fourth of Matthew's gospel is devoted to the last week of our Lord's life and the events surrounding the crucifixion. One-fourth of Matthew's gospel. John's gospel actually gives an entire third of the book to cover those events. So it is obvious that the gospel writers placed a heavy emphasis on the final days of our Lord's life. Mark is no exception. This chapter opens with a description of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. That opened the last week of our Lord's life. The next day, Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it of the crass commercialism that was going on just as he had done at the beginning of his ministry. The religious leaders of Jerusalem were furious about both of those events as we see in this passage before us. Rather than seeing the triumphal entry As a fulfillment of messianic prophecy, they were jealous of all of the attention being given to Jesus. They were also concerned that all this commotion might result in the Romans coming down on them in some way and changing the status quo. They certainly didn't want that because they liked things the way they were. Oh, sure, they would like to have been rid of the Romans, but if the Romans are going to be here... They liked things as they were. They liked the influence they had over the people, and they liked all the money they were making off the people, which is why they were so angry that Jesus had thrown out the money changers. Jesus was a threat to their positions and their influence and their profit. Thus, instead of embracing him as their Messiah and King, they set their faces against him and sought how they might destroy him. Furthermore, this entire scene is followed immediately by the questioning of Jesus' authority by the chief priests and the elders of the people, beginning in verse 27. So it is clear, as you study this chapter, 
that Mark has arranged his material for us to see the connection between the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the anger of the religious leaders, and the cursing of the fig tree. In fact, as you hopefully noticed when we read the text a moment ago, Mark actually splits up his description of the cursing of the fig tree by inserting the account of the cleansing of the temple. It all fits together to paint a clear picture of the fact that the religious leaders of Israel, who had so much privilege and so much opportunity, ended up fruitless and therefore cursed of God. That's the point that Mark wants to get across to his readers. Let's see how he does it, beginning in verse 12. Mark tells us, Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. Mark reminds us that Jesus came from Bethany, which was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, two miles east of Jerusalem. This was our Lord's pattern during the final days of his life prior to the crucifixion. He would go into the city of Jerusalem early in the morning and spend the day there ministering in the temple, teaching, healing, answering questions. Then at the end of the day, he would take the walk back across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and just over the backside of the Mount of Olives to the town of Bethany. Bethany was a relatively safe place to avoid sudden premature arrest by the Jewish leaders. So Jesus went back there each night, and he would return to Jerusalem in the morning. That's what we see here in this text. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, he went into the temple and he looked around at all things. That's what Mark told us back in verse 11. He says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple, So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, Jesus headed back into Jerusalem to cleanse the temple, as we saw last Sunday in the message last week. But on the way, something else happened that was very significant. Mark tells us about this event in two parts, or in two stages. He introduces it in verses 12 through 14, and then he finishes the story in verses 12 or 20 through 24. But sandwiched in between is the story of the cleansing of the temple. That is by design. That is clearly by design in Mark's plan to get us to understand the significance of this event. So Jesus is headed back into Jerusalem. This was probably very early in the morning, prior to 6 a.m. Jesus was headed back to the city of Jerusalem to spend the day ministering in the temple. He got up early, left Bethany, headed out before breakfast, so he was hungry. Verse 13 says, And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, I'm no fig tree expert, but I did do enough reading on this subject to get an understanding of what was going on here. If it wasn't the season for figs, which Mark clearly tells us was the case, 
then why would Jesus expect to find anything on the tree to eat? And why did he curse it for not having anything on it to eat? Remember, this event took place right at Passover. This is just a few days before Passover. That means it would have been in April. In Palestine, fig trees produce crops of small edible buds in March, followed by the appearance of large green leaves in early April. So it wasn't unreasonable for Jesus to assume when he saw these leaves from a distance that this tree would have some of these small edible buds. Matthew tells us that this tree was alongside the road, which would have meant that it was public property. So if it would have had the small edible buds, Jesus could have grabbed some of them to eat to curb his hunger. Eventually, these buds would give way to actual figs, which would come in late May and in June. That was the fig season. If a tree didn't have these buds, then that would indicate that it would be fruitless even though it had large green leaves. So understand this. Jesus it did not expect this tree to have figs yet. But because it was leafed out with green leaves, he did expect it to have the small edible buds. The reason why it's important to understand this is because many people accuse Jesus of being harsh and unreasonable for cursing a fig tree that didn't have figs two months earlier than it should have had figs. In fact, a commentator by the name of Joseph Klesuner calls this story, quote, listen to this, a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong and had but performed its natural function, end quote. Another commentator by the name of Hunter said, quote, With our knowledge of Jesus from other sources, we find it frankly incredible that he could have used his power to wither a fig tree because it did not yet yield figs two or three months before its natural time of fruitage, end quote. Yet another commentator by the name of Manson comments, quote, It is a tale, now listen to the audacity of these statements, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season, and as it stands, this is simply incredible. End quote. So what all those commentators are saying is that Jesus lost his temper, was unreasonable to expect a tree to have figs on it two to three months earlier, so in some knee-jerk reaction, he cursed a poor, innocent fig tree. Beloved, that is not at all what is going on here. Jesus did not expect this tree to have figs yet, but because it was leafed out with green leaves, he did expect it to have the small, edible buds. If a tree didn't have these buds, then that would indicate that it would be fruitless even though it had large green leaves. That's very important to keep in mind to understand the reason why Jesus did what he did. So Mark tells us in verse 14, in response, Jesus said to it, to this tree, 
Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, if you fail to understand what I was just explaining and what Jesus was doing in this context, you could read it as some kind of impulsive act of frustration. But we know that Jesus never reacted to things impetuously. So there's obviously more to the situation than that. This was no knee-jerk reaction from Jesus. It was an intentional, deliberate, divine object lesson. So what was its purpose? To help us understand the purpose, Mark pauses the story and inserts the account of Jesus going into the temple to cleanse it from its debauchery. That gives us a clue about the meaning behind Jesus cursing the fig tree. It's almost as if Mark wants us to stop our consideration of the cursed fig tree so we will interpret it in light of the fruitless condition that Jesus addressed in the temple. Mark wants us to be careful not to draw wrong conclusions like the ones in the quotes I gave you just a few moments ago. He wants to make sure, and that's why he structured this chapter as he did, he wants to make sure that we make the connection between the cursed fig tree and the wretched condition in the temple that prompted our Lord's strong reaction. In other words, let me say it plainly. The cursed fig tree was an object lesson of Israel's cursed condition due to a lack of fruitfulness. Joel 1.7 describes Israel's devastation from a swarm of locusts in the past, in its history, and he describes it this way. Listen to this statement from Joel 1.7 in light of what we're looking at here in Mark about a fig tree and Israel's fruitlessness. Joel 1.7 says this of the swarm of locusts. It has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. It has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Hosea 9.10 also uses the imagery of the fig tree to symbolize Israel, the nation of Israel. So this fig tree was a perfect illustration of the nation of Israel. It was full of leaves, so it looked healthy. It looked good, but had no fruit. That was exactly the condition of the nation of Israel. They had the look. They had the external, but they had no fruit. They had the temple. They had the sacrificial system. They had the priesthood. So they had the look, but upon closer inspection, they didn't have the kind of fruit that God requires. They were fruitless and barren of the fruit God was looking for in their lives. Now certainly, there were some rare exceptions in the nation of Israel. There were a few righteous, godly, faithful people scattered throughout the nation. But as a whole, as a whole, the nation was fruitless and barren especially the religious leaders. That's why Jesus cursed this fig tree. 
He wanted the scene. He wanted the experience. He wanted the event to be a shocking and potent illustration of of how God felt about the nation of Israel as a whole. They looked good. Oh, yes. From a distance, they looked good. But because they were actually fruitless of the kind of fruit God looks for, they were cursed. By the way, this wasn't the first time this kind of assessment and indictment had been given of the nation of Israel. There is a passage that all of them should have known very well. It's found back in Isaiah chapter 5. Go back there with me for just a moment. After the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then Isaiah chapter 5. And I want you to notice God's assessment of his people through the prophet Isaiah. This is a passage that everyone in Israel should have known and known very well. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones. This is, this is uh, so a poetic way of describing what God did for the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, to give them every opportunity to be fruitful in the way he wanted them to be fruitful. So he dug it up, cleared out its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth Good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. By the way, a little side note, it's fascinating to read this in the Hebrew text because there are all sorts of little play on words happening in here where the prophet will use one word that sounds almost exactly like the other word, but its meaning is virtually the opposite. So he looked for it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for, and here's where the real play on words happens in Hebrew. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, But behold, a cry for help. You see, God was looking for the kind of fruit that was to be expected of his people, but it wasn't there. Thus, all they could look forward to was judgment. Therefore, in verses 8 through 23 of this chapter, and we're not going to read all of those, but in verses 8 through 23, the prophet pronounced six woes, six cries of judgment against the calloused people of Israel. And beloved, that is exactly what Jesus was depicting when he cursed the fig tree in his day. 
He was illustrating the fact that because the people of Israel were fruitless and did not bring forth the kind of fruit that God expected and the kind of fruit that God had, had equipped them to be able to bring forth, the only thing they could look forward to was the curse of judgment. Now back to our text in Mark chapter 11. So Mark paused his story about the cursed fig tree to describe the cleansing of the temple, and then he resumed the story down in verse 20. So skip now down to verse 20, since last week we looked at the cleansing of the temple in verses 15 through 19, and look at how Mark resumes the story. Verse 20. Now in the morning... As they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. This reaction by the disciples is really sort of surprising. Think about it. Even though the disciples had seen so many astounding miracles from Jesus, it seems that this one amazed them. This one stood out to them. And that is exactly what Jesus wanted. He wanted this to make a vivid and lasting impression upon his disciples. He wanted this to stick with them. He wanted them to remember this event because it would serve as a graphic lesson to them that having the look, having all of the externals, isn't what matters. That's not what matters. The nation had the look. They had the external appearance. They had all the functions of the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system, but they didn't have the fruit, which is what God looks for in a person's life. He doesn't look at how good they can talk the talk or how well they can put on a facade to everyone around them or how well they can go through all the the functions and the liturgy and all of that. No, he looks at the condition of the heart and the fruit that is produced from it. And so in verse 22, after Peter points out with amazement this fig tree, verse 22 tells us, So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. That seems rather disconnected, doesn't it? I mean, Peter, as the spokesman for the disciples, made a comment to Jesus to show that they were all amazed by this withered fig tree. And Jesus simply responded by saying, have faith in God. How does that fit? It fits in two ways. First of all, Jesus was trying to get the disciples to understand that the spiritual leaders of Israel, now this would have been, this would have been really shocking. He was trying to get the disciples to understand that the spiritual leaders of Israel didn't really have faith in God. That would, be a, that would be hard for the disciples to believe and accept, but it was a fact. It would have been so hard because they saw these priests and they saw these leaders and they're dressed in the robes and they, they talk about the God of Israel and they talk about Scripture and the Word of God. They even bring it, holding it up as they carry it in to the temple or the synagogue and they, they, they seem to honor the Word of God and Jesus is saying they don't have faith in God? Well, that would have been really hard to accept. 
The spiritual leaders didn't really have faith in God. And Jesus was trying to stress to his men that this was the case and that they needed to be different. Secondly, Jesus made this statement so he could elaborate in the verses that follow. Verse 23, Jesus said this, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now what is this verse talking about? This is another verse that is often completely ripped out of its context to teach things and support things that just aren't true. Remember what is going on here. Jesus is wanting to communicate a memorable lesson about the fruitlessness of the people of Israel and especially its spiritual leaders. That's why he cursed the fig tree. The spiritual leaders of Israel had no real or genuine faith in God. Oh, they had all the actions and all the, you know, all the externals and all the ritual and all the liturgy, but it was all a bunch of empty ritual and liturgy. That's why nothing of eternal value was happening in their lives and in their ministries. Jesus wanted to make sure that things were different with his disciples. He wanted them to see the importance of a real and living and genuine and vibrant faith. That's why he made this statement. This is intentional exaggeration for the purpose of making a point. I mean, think about it. Jesus never, ever performed any thrill-seeking kinds of miracles. What I mean is, he never did a miracle just for the sake of an, of an exciting effect. He never made a camel disappear, right? He never flew through the air. He never caught an arrow in his teeth. He never did miracles that were simply for the purpose of amazing people, without some kind of divine or spiritual purpose. So don't misread his words here to think that he is suggesting to his disciples that they could have the power to levitate the Mount of Olives and have it fly through the air and splash into the Mediterranean Sea. That completely misses the point of what Jesus is doing here. That would merely be a show, which is the exact thing for which the nation was cursed for having a nice show, but nothing real or genuine. They were cursed because they could put on a show with all of their external trappings and all of the sacrificial system and all of that went on in the temple, but they were utterly fruitless because of an absence of genuine faith. So, think about it. Jesus isn't going to turn around in the very next breath and encourage his disciples to put on a show with their faith. Furthermore, in Matthew 12, when the Pharisees asked Jesus to do a miracle for the purpose of putting on a show, he refused. So there's no way that Jesus is suggesting to his disciples here in this verse that if they just had more faith, they could put on a better show. They could levitate a mountain and throw it into the Mediterranean Sea. That runs completely contrary to this entire passage. Jesus was speaking with intentional exaggeration to let the disciples know that God wanted to do great and awesome things through them and through their ministries in the days ahead, but the only way those things would be accomplished would be if they had real faith instead of empty external ritual. 
And the only way those things would happen would be if they were men of prayer, dependence on God. And so he adds in verse 24, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Again, beloved, you have to take this verse in its context of what Jesus is saying here, what he is teaching here, or else you will end up believing and teaching things that really aren't accurate. This is not some kind of blanket statement on prayer. Jesus is not saying, pray about winning the lottery, and if you pray in faith, you will win it. Pray about getting a new house and a new car and a new wardrobe, and if you pray in faith, God will give you a bunch of new stuff. That completely misses the point. For one thing, these words were spoken to the disciples. Second, these words were spoken in a specific context to make a specific point, and that context is Jesus contrasting the emptiness of a fruitless faith with the power of genuine faith. The religious leaders of the day, and many of the people also, were fruitless and spiritually barren because they did not possess a genuine faith in the Lord God of Israel. Well, they talked about the God of Israel, and they recited the prayers, and they went through all the motions, they did all the stuff, they talked about Scripture, they read the Scripture, but it was all a bunch of religious ritual and empty tradition. Jesus wanted his men to see that for what it was, which isn't easy to do. Still not easy for people to do today. But Jesus wanted his men to see that for what it really was because he wanted their lives to be marked by the power of genuine, authentic faith, not empty religious ritual. He wanted their lives to be marked by sincere prayer, not mechanical prayer that simply goes through the motions. Not the kind of prayer that says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You've ever been in situations like that? Churches like that? Oh, I've been in many services like that. Oh, we pray the prayers. They're biblical prayers. But it's just, it's just mechanical prayer that goes through the motions. That's why Jesus made this statement. The disciples were used to seeing their countrymen And their religious leaders pray by reciting memorized prayers and liturgical prayers. And they thought that they honored the Word of God because they first thing at the beginning of their service in the synagogues, they would march forward holding it up, the Torah, the Word of God. But the fact is it was all a bunch of empty ritual and it was powerless. But genuine faith and sincere prayer are powerful. That's what God is looking for. That's why Jesus made these statements. Most of the Jewish people, and especially the religious leaders, were void of genuine faith and sincere prayer. Their faith was a faith of tradition instead of a living, vibrant faith. And their prayers were prayers of ritual and liturgy. They were mechanical They lacked genuine faith, and thus their prayers were simply mechanical. That's why they would be cursed like the fig tree, which is the point of this section. It's the whole point of this section. Beloved, the main point of this entire passage is that those whose lives are fruitless, devoid of the fruit that God is looking for, are cursed. And please hear this. They are cursed not because they haven't cranked out enough works. 
but rather because their hearts aren't really right with God so as to produce the kind of fruit he rightly expects. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that what they saw, what they saw in the religion all around them was not what God wanted. What they saw in the temple, what they saw with the priests, what they saw in the sacrificial system is not what God wanted. And let me tell you something, beloved, that is not, uh, that is not easy for people to understand. It is not. Still to this day, it is so difficult for many people, even genuine Christians, to understand that empty, meaningless r- ritual that is present in so much of Christianity, so much of Christendom, is not what God wants. He doesn't care what it looks like, the dress, the robes, and the, the exalting of the, the Torah or the Bible. or all. He doesn't care about that stuff. And it's hard for people to accept that. In fact, when you criticize it, it is very common for people to get angry with you just as people got angry with Jesus. Even genuine Christians sometimes get upset when you criticize the empty, meaningless ritual that characterizes so many churches, so many denominations, so much of Christendom in our land. So Jesus wanted to drive home the message in a powerful way so his disciples would get it and never forget it. Doesn't matter that this fig tree looks great. Doesn't matter it has big green leaves. That doesn't matter. What matters is what God looks at upon closer inspection. It doesn't matter how good things look on the outside. It doesn't matter how many attractive religious trappings there are. It doesn't matter that, that people talk about Scripture and talk about God and churches and religions talk about Scripture and God. All of that stuff is meaningless to the Lord. It's worse than meaningless when it covers up a heart and life that doesn't really bear genuine spiritual fruit. To show you this, let's go back to Matthew 3 as we close this morning. Matthew 3 gives us a fitting conclusion to this story. In verse 10, this is how John the baptizer began his ministry and how he carried it out and the central message of his, of his ministry. Verse 10, Matthew 3, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The Lord doesn't look. Please hear this. The Lord doesn't look at how good a person can talk the talk or how well he can put on a facade to everyone around him, or how well he can go through the motions, or how well he can recite the the memorized prayers, or how well he can go through all of the, the tradition or the liturgy. The Lord looks at the condition of the heart and the fruit that is produced from it and the kind of fruit that he expects. That's what the Lord looks at. The Lord looks for the kind of fruit that comes from a heart that has real faith. Not ritualistic faith, genuine faith. Not just liturgy faith, real, genuine faith. That's what the Lord looks for. Is that you? Do you have genuine faith? Real faith? 
Or is it just that, well, I've gone to church, you know, all my life. I've gone to church for years, so I just kind of amalgamated into the group. No, do you have genuine faith? Real faith. That's what the Lord is looking for. And that's why Jesus cursed the fig tree. So we would never, ever forget this lesson. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow our heads together, we must, we must ask ourselves the question, what, what kind of faith do we have? Is it real, genuine, authentic? Not merely just a sort of a religious faith, a ritualistic faith, a faith of external, a faith of tradition. The Jewish people of Jesus' day had all of that. All of that. Which is why it was hard for the disciples to get this and understand this and see this, just as it is hard for Christians today to see this and understand it. But it's obviously important to Jesus. So important that he, in a graphic way, with a lesson his disciples would never forget, cursed a fig tree so that it withered up almost before their very eyes. So they would never forget God. God's not looking at all those external trappings, all of those practices or rituals or whatever. God is looking at for fruit that comes from a heart that has been transformed by genuine faith. Is that you? Has your life been transformed by a genuine faith in Jesus Christ? If not, or if there's any doubt, I urge you, today, don't put it off, today, surrender your life, your heart, your will, your volition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, what an amazing story we have had the opportunity to consider this morning from Mark's gospel. We can only imagine what it was like for the disciples at the time to walk by on the way into Jerusalem and hear Jesus curse the fig tree and then sort of forget about it as he goes in to cleanse the temple and all of the shocking nature of that event and then to return and come back and see this withered up fig tree and to hopefully put those two events together in their minds of why Jesus did what he did in the temple and why he did what he did with the fig tree. It's very clear the message he was wanting to leave with them and with us. It's very clear that Mark put this story together in such an editorial way so that we would get the message. And Father, I pray we would get it. Pray we would really hear it and understand it and grasp it and realize that Contrary to what is so commonly emphasized in religion, even in Christianity, that all of the external stuff, all of, the, all of those rituals and liturgies, all of that is meaningless to you. It's the heart that you look at. And you look at the heart to see if it produces the kind of fruit that you expect to be produced from a life transformed by genuine faith. Father, I pray that each and every one of us here would have that kind of genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who don't, Father, make it clear to them. Don't let them just coast along, just go along in life assuming that they're okay, that they're fine. Somehow get through to them. 
that they would turn to Jesus Christ in genuine, simple, humble, childlike faith. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.